Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. We're so excited to be here at the Commonwealth Club. The program tapes here weekly, and lately, as we head into the holiday season, it kind of fluctuates between Wednesday, Thursday. So check the listings at commonwealthclub.org for future programs. But I'm really happy to be doing this program with my co-host, John Zipper, who's the vice president of media here at Commonwealth Club. And he also hosts his program, which is called the Week to Week Political Roundtable Talk. So uh, I'm very, very Happy to have a political nerd with us today. <laughs> it, it's really going to be his show. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have a special guest, and I'm lucky and honored uh, that he's here today, but I'm lucky to, to be able to call him a friend, and we have done some work together throughout our careers. Uh, but the last time I saw him, I sat in his office as he was terming out as Board of Supervisor for San Francisco, and uh, I shed a tear. It was, it was <laughs> sad, but we knew that David would continue to be a force here in San Francisco. He's currently the chair of the San Francisco Democratic County Central Committee. Let's welcome David Campos to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. It's a, an honor to be here, and uh, I had an opportunity to meet your wife, so congratulations. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's new. No baby yet, but yes, a wife. That's new since we last spoke. So, John, thank you for, yeah. for having Glad to have you here. Well. Uh, we have a lot of important things to cover, and we're going to try to cover it in one hour, but uh, we can't let you go without at least honoring the tradition here on the program of sharing a coming out story. So, David, if you will. You know, coming out for me was very challenging. I guess it's probably challenging for everyone. Uh, and I was actually in law school when I did it, and uh, I did it by way of a letter to my parents. And, uh, you know, the, the thing about coming out is that if you grew up in a family like mine, you're a Latino family, very religious, Catholic, uh, you, you think that if you tell your parents, your family, uh, that side uh, about you, that you'll never have them in your life. And, and what I realize is that, you know, there's something to be said for family and that, uh, as much as you think that your family is not going to be there, uh, that's not the case. And in my case, my family has uh, a closer relationship with me uh, because I can be my authentic self. And uh, but at the time, you thought the world would come to an end, and and in fact, I think you know things got so much better. So what were the responses? Did they write you a letter back and say it's okay? To I think forget. no. I mean, I think it took it's a, it's a process, and I think. Yeah. You know, this is back in, you know, uh, 1997, 96. So it's a, it was a different time. Uh, but I think that uh, the thing about coming out, which is what's so powerful about it, and as Harvey Milk used to say, is uh, that it's a lot harder for you to demonize and to think of all the horrible things uh, about uh, gay people <laughs> when you actually know someone who is gay. And I think that for my parents, they had a lot of uh, stereotypical views of what it meant to be a member of the LGBT community, which once they saw uh, who I was in my life, you know, it just sort of uh, it clarified things. 
There's nothing like knowing someone who's gay. So they knew you. Did that change then their views of homosexuality and homosexuality? I think so, yes. Yeah. And, you know, they are uh, as close to my husband mm -hmm. uh, as as they are to any of their uh, in-laws. So, you know, it, I yeah. think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's an amazing thing to see, uh, though at the time, uh, like I said, I don't know that we, that I thought that was possible. Well, thank you for sharing. Sure. Okay, so the election. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, I think we start locally. I think we start sure. with San Francisco. Yeah. I th uh, the results or the outcome of yeah. uh, Board of Supervisors, for example, that is a huge win for, I, I think, you know, the, the liberal party or the liberal of all of us in mm -hmm. the Democratic Party. Your thoughts? Well, you know, I, I'm very proud of the work that the San Francisco Democratic Party has done uh, in the audience. You, you have our executive director, uh, Adam Mayes, uh, who was an important part of, of all that work. And, and with respect to the local elections, uh, what we tried to do was to support candidates and measures that we believe so are who we are as San Francisco Democrats. Uh, and uh, not only did we support those candidates and endorse them, but we actually went all out to work for them. And the party had the most uh, robust program that I have seen uh, since I've been in San Francisco. Uh, we had the typical slate card, you know, but we had that in English, we had it in Spanish, we had it in Chinese. And then besides those three slate cards, we had 11 individual pieces that we mailed out. And I think that work really paid off because what happened is that by the end of the election, you can see that every one of our endorsed candidates for supervisor uh, won. Uh, and I think uh, that happened for a lot of different reasons and certainly each of them ran great campaigns. But I think that one of the things that happened is that the Democratic Party did push them forward. And, and, and I think that because that's because there is a sense that the San Francisco Democratic Party is more relevant to people and they trust that party. So I'm very proud of that. And what that has created is not only a more progressive majority, but it's in many respects a super majority that transcends ideology. You know, there are people in that super majority that are not necessarily progressive per se, but there are people who, that, we, that we can work with and who believe that San Francisco uh, needs to uh, take care of every San Franciscan. Uh, and I think that is a very important message in that election, not just the candidates that won, but we had a very important measure, Prop C, that was on the ballot. And Prop C was ultimately about that, this, this idea of, you know, should the wealthiest city in the country turn its back on the homeless? And San Franciscans overwhelmingly said, no, we're not right. going to do that. I want to, I really want to dive into Prop, uh, Prop C in, in a lot of ways and break it down and kind of what this means for our city. But going back to Board of Supervisors, I mean, so District 2, Catherine Stefani, District 4, Gordon Marr, mm -hmm. District 6, Matt Haney, which is huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, landslide. Um, District 8, of course, Raphael Mandelman continued to be um, our, our supervisor for District 8. And then District 10, uh, Shaman Walton. And when you think about these people, and you mentioned a, a super majority of progressives, um, my thoughts 
instantly go to, gosh, we just got out of a very contentious and mm-hmm. grueling mayoral election here in San Francisco. We know the outcome of that, and we now have Mayor Lyndon Breed. Mm-hmm. How is the dynamic going to change, in your opinion? As some people had felt like, you know, some, some of us in the progressive community really were disappointed in the outcome, um, mm-hmm. but th- this being a, a big win for us, how does how is that going to change the dynamic? Well, first of all, I think that uh, every one of the candidates that won and uh, that is already there uh, wants to work with Mayor Breed. Uh, many of us did not support her, uh, but we want to work with her. Uh, we want her to be successful. Uh, and, and I can tell you that if you speak to every one of the candidates that we endorse, they will say that. But it's not just uh, they who would say that. Uh, if you talk to Hillary Ronan, if you talk to uh, Aaron Peskin, other people, they will say the same thing. Uh, I think that the message for, for Mayor Breed is that in terms of policy, uh, the people that were elected are more aligned with, with where San Francisco is. And on the very important issue of homelessness, uh, uh, that alignment is clear, and she is not where San Franciscans are. And since this new majority is, uh, I think it's an opportunity for her to work with that new majority. And I can tell you that that new majority will extend that olive branch, which I hope uh, she takes, uh, because you know it's all in our interest for for London Breed as mayor to be successful. Uh, but we also want to be clear that we want to have a relationship that is uh, a respectful relationship where it's a two-way street, where it's not just one way, you know, that the board and this new supermajority has a role to play in the governance of this city. And, and so I am optimistic that we will get to that point. Uh, but, you know, uh, now that... Uh, I think the olive branch has been extended. Hopefully, it's in it's in her her the ball is in her court to take it. It's it's interesting that we have this situation here in 2018 after this election because, of course, former San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom just became governor. When Gavin Newsom was mayor, he had a very contentious relationship with the board of supervisors. At one point, there was a referendum on that would have forced the mayor every so often to actually have to come and, and talk to the board. Um, I mean, what knowing what you know about London Breed, which and it's a lot more than I know about her, but I mean, so knowing what you know about her, what do you think she is likely to do different? Not what you hope she'll do different, but I mean, you know, knowing how she deals with people or her her the way she networks and how, what she knows of the people on the board. What do you think she's likely to do with a board that is going to have some different priorities on, on confronting issues that, frankly, in a large scale, they're all on the same side? How to get there? Obviously, there are some very serious differences. You know, I, I really think that it would be a mistake for me to prejudge that uh, because, you know, I have differences of opinion with London, but I also know that she's a very smart person. Uh, she's very capable, uh, and I think she cares about the city. And uh, I, I actually think that part of what happened with this election is that she received bad advice, and she followed that bad advice. Uh, Prop C is, quite frankly, to this day, I don't understand why she came out against it. 
because what it does is it actually provided the mayor the funding needed to address a lot of the issues around homelessness that we're not able to address, and specifically the issue of housing and services. Uh, I can tell you as a supervisor, uh, because I had the most encampments for a while in my district, and we cleared a lot of those encampments, but what happened is that we would clear them, send people to the navigation center, and then after 30 days, there was nowhere to go to send these people, and so they were back on the street. Prop C actually gives the city the funding to build that supportive housing so that you have a place to put people. That's what we're doing in Santa Clara, where we have a close to a billion dollars in a bond where we're actually building uh, supportive housing for these people so that they're not on the street. And so I still don't understand why a mayor would be against that. And to the extent that there are issues about the way the money is, spend, is being spent, you're the mayor, you're the chief executive. You know, make it right. Make sure that the people that, that are working for you are doing what they're supposed so to. So she'll be in charge of actually determining how that well, money is spent or will the board? Well, that's the que big question mark with Prop C, right? That the way that it works is that, yes, uh, the mayor as the chief executive will be in charge. Or, I, or will Mark Benioff be? Well, and, and I think that the board has a very important role to play. Yeah. The thing about Mark Benioff, right, is uh, I give Mark Benioff a lot of credit. Because, you know, we have been talking about corporate responsibility for a long time. But it's one thing for me as, as an elected, as a political person, to talk about corporate responsibility. It's another thing when someone from that world actually steps forward and says, you know what, we're making a lot of money. We're making a lot of money because we, we are in San Francisco and we have a responsibility as a corporation to give back. Yeah. And so I give him a lot of credit. Hopefully, you know, he'll finally do something about what's happening in the border and what Salesforce is doing on that. Uh, so he's not, you know, perfect, but a lot of credit on this issue. Yep. Uh, but the challenge with Prop C is that there are forces that are trying to keep it from being enforced. And I really hope that the Board of Supervisors uh, pushes forward so that the will of the voters is respected and this bogus idea of a lawsuit uh, uh, we're going to have to fight that. Now, and now, and I've, I've heard this is the argument of it not having two-thirds of a... Mm -hmm. What does that actually mean in legal terms? Because when that came up, I was like, oh, I didn't, didn't realize that was even an issue. Well, I think that, that there is a legal challenge, and I'm, I'm happy to see that the city attorney has made it very clear that he's going to vehemently defend the will of the voters. Uh, and uh, quite frankly, what I hope happens and what I would ask the mayor is that she, as the chief executive, now that the voters have spoken, she should contact those individuals if she has relationships with them to say, drop your legal challenge. You know, let's, because I think in the end, we're going to win that legal challenge, but why spend the next few months fighting about that when we should be thinking about the most cost-effective and efficient way of actually using this money? Uh, so I hope she does that. Uh, and if she doesn't do that, then I think this uh, creates an opportunity for the Board of Supervisors, this working supermajority, to step in and say, Madam Mayor, if, if you're not going to you know, lead the charge to implement Prop C, we're going to push it forward to make that happen. And it's not, it's not about politics. It really is about doing something for these, uh, the, the most vulnerable people in our communities but it's also respecting the will of the voters. San Franciscans have spoken. More than 60% said this is the way to go. 
And so one of the things that we don't do enough uh, as elected officials is respect what voters have said. And in this case, the, the, the message is clear. I hope they heed that message. Of course, a lot of voters also voted for Donald Trump. So um, just saying. <laughs> Sometimes well, well, actually, millions yeah. more voted for That's Hillary true. Clinton. So Right, but... Um, the, I didn't actually mean to get that into antagonistic, just pointing out that sometimes voters will do something you, you don't want, and you kind of are hoping that there will be, you know, compromises or whatever. Um, clearly, with the, the landslide victory of all five of the propositions that they passed, mm -hmm. there were five measures on the ballot locally. I was kind of curious. So this was a year, whether you call it a blue wave or not, technically it probably wasn't, but it certainly was a, a big upsurge in, in Democratic voting in many areas. In San Francisco and the Bay Area tends to have higher voting averages than others. How did we do compared to normally? And what I really want to get at is if this hadn't been a, you know, Trumpian blue wave sort of era, how, do you think any of these local races would have gone differently? Or do you think those forces that drove those were would have uh, gone the same way anyway? I think at some point there has to be some analysis of what the various factors, uh, you know, where I think it's, it was a confluence of things that came together. Uh, I think that what's happening at the national level certainly had a bit of big effect. And I think I can tell you from some of the people in the audience and others that being out there working on these local campaigns, the fact that you had a Democratic Party, San Francisco Democratic Party slate card meant a lot for people. Uh, especially because of what was happening at the national level, I think. Uh, and, uh, but, but I think that a lot of things were possible. And the way that I saw the role of the San Francisco Democratic Party was that it wasn't just that we, we had to impact what happened here locally, which we clearly did, right? The party essentially, party endorsement meant, you know, most of the time you were going to win. But we also had to impact what happened at the state level and at the national level. And at the state level, San Francisco's turnout was so high and the level of engagement was so high that I think that we actually tipped the outcome in favor of some really important candidates in very close races. Tony Thurman right now is ahead by a few thousand votes. Uh, you know, and he was going against a, a charter school back candidate where a lot of money was spent against him. We actually had a, a specific mailer focusing on education, which meant that more people voted for him in San Francisco. I think that was important. Uh, the same thing with other races. You know, I can tell you that they were relying on San Francisco to deliver a big turnout and a big vote for these candidates because you cannot win statewide unless you win San Francisco by wide margins. And then the, the other thing that I would say, which is to me, besides the local stuff, the most important thing we did, in, and arguably, and I actually think it's the single most important thing that happened on Tuesday of election day, is that we won the House. In San Francisco, we opened Red to Blue SF with Nancy Pelosi where we had San Francisco Democrats calling in these congressional seats. And a lot of the races that we focused on are races that we won and that we flipped. So we had a role to play in taking back the House of Representatives, which I think is the most important thing that we had to do against Trump. So many. Yeah. So many exciting things to talk about in this election, but you, you got into the House, so let's talk or revel in that for mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, 
What do you think, what do you expect of the, of the, the new House majority and whoever's the speaker, though at the moment it looks like it'll be Nancy Pelosi again, but what do you expect they're going to do? The whole, you know, there's the, a lot of the base saying impeachment. There's a lot of uh, the more establishment wing saying, no, 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 we're going to investigate. What do you think, or whether they, what do you think they will do or what do you think they should do? What's your view? Well, look, I think, I think that I, I speak as a progressive Democrat, you know, part of the reason that I got involved in Democratic Party uh, politics is to move the party left. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that we ran a slate to take over the San Francisco Democratic Party is because we felt that the Democratic Party in San Francisco had become too corporate and, and do, you know, dominated by those corporate interests. So we are pushing the party left. Uh, that said, I, I do think it's important to have unity and one of the things that, that does bother me about what's happening, even though I don't agree with Nancy Pelosi on everything, uh, and there are things that I, that I think you know, she could be more progressive on, uh, it does bother me, right, that, that we have this fight, even though she spearheaded this effort to take back the House and, and was successful in so many ways, and we know that because we worked directly with her to make that happen, that there is now a question of whether or not she should be speaker. Uh, I do think that, that the speakership is not something that she should do for too long, but I do think that given what she did and what she oversaw, that she deserves that. You have Chuck Schumer, who lost seats, who was just voted overwhelmingly you know, uh, by acclamation to be the lead, uh, to be the leader for the, for the Senate. I do think that there is sexism involved, that, that when a woman uh, does something like what she just did, that there isn't that level of recognition, and you have these five you know, white men who are trying to oust her. So I hope she prevails, because I think it's the right thing to do. And when she prevails, I think that those of us on the left will have an opportunity to push so that the, the Democratic Party holds Trump accountable and actually pushes for the issues that are important to working people. And stands up for basic rights. And one of the things that I am particularly concerned about uh, as a formerly undocumented immigrant is what's happening around immigration. I think that uh, what's happening with immigration is a tragedy and it's, uh, it goes against who we are as a country. And we need to push back on what Donald Trump is doing where he's demonizing immigrants. And it's ultimately driven by racism and white supremacy. And I think that we have to be the party uh, that supports our history, our tradition as a country of immigrants. I, I want to add, you know, just a couple of points to this discussion in terms of even some of our Democratic leaders uh, moving or swinging more left. I mean, let's mention Dianne Feinstein, who has um, stood up for Prop C, and that was a little bit of a shock. And at the same time, even recognizing her political courage and experience when we saw her come out, you know, fighting with nails and, I mean, claws uh, during the Kavanaugh hearings. And you, you could, you, if, you, if you saw from the backside, you saw that this person really understood politics in some ways. I would just love to hear your thoughts on kind of when we lost the president or, or when, when Hillary Clinton lost, I mean, I think the Democratic Party went through an identity crisis, if you will. We were leading up to that, you know, adding Bernie Sanders as a socialist, um, to, uh, as a Democratic ticket. Mm -hmm. So 
just speak to maybe like in this past two years, how we have evolved. I kind of feel like we're starting to see where our strengths are, where uh, we could learn, and we're kind of starting to move into Mm -hmm. meeting each other in the middle. Well, look, I I think that the Democratic Party is at a crossroads. Uh, We're trying to figure out who we are as a party. And, And one of the reasons that I believe we lost the presidential race and why we have lost, you know, in the past is because we have moved away from the core principles that make you a Democrat. Uh, because so many Democrats, uh, so many corporate Democrats started to look like Republican. And, and when people have a choice between a Republican and a Republican wannabe, my sense is that they're going to choose the Republican because they'd rather have the, the real thing. Uh, and so those of us on the progressive side of the Democratic Party have fought against those corporate interests, not because we're against corporations, but because we don't believe that corporations should dictate policy or govern the agenda of the party. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Uh, uh, I'm not a fan of Dianne Feinstein, uh, and I'm glad that she moved left. Uh, but I think that part of what happened with that race uh, uh it was a push against the establishment. And, and I'll be honest with you, I think that there is a machine, a political establishment in San Francisco, in California, that runs San Francisco politics, that runs state politics. Uh, and it's a very wealthy establishment that is connected to big money. And those of us who are involved in Democratic parties want to reform, in the Democratic Party, we want to reform that. We want to bring the party back to the people. Uh, and, and I think that it's an opportunity to do that. And what we have seen is that if you change your message and are unapologetic about who you are, and if you in turn focus that message on working people, on women, on communities of color, and especially activate those communities of color, you can win, right? Uh, and I think what happened before is that people thought that the way to winning was to water down who we were. You know, to try to appeal to a middle that never really voted for us in the end. And I think that we are going back to, to who we are, to the core of, of what makes us Democrats. And what we have found in this election is that, you know what, that is actually a winning strategy. And that's why I think it's a really exciting time. Uh, and, and it's a time for us to come together and be smart. Because as much as I want to make a stand and take a principle when it comes to Donald Trump, first and foremost, I want to win. We have to win. We have to get him out of the White House because if we fail to do that, uh, you know, we will be in trouble. Look at how much damage he's already done in two years, right? Look at how much damage he's done, excuse me, in the last six days. Yes, exactly, right? So, So we cannot afford which is why I think that as much as there are divides internally, we have to, first and foremost, be united as a party. Uh, party unity is really important because that's what it's going to take to defeat this guy and everything else that comes with him. This isn't really necessarily what you deal with at the DCCC, but if you're Russia and you wanted to hurt the Democrats, what would you be doing right now? Well, I mean, I think I think they they have a, a winning strategy, quite frankly, because you know they got their guy in in the White House, and uh, you know the way that that 
the the president of the United States talk about this foreign government, it's like he worked for for them, mm-hmm. uh, and you know his allegiance is to that foreign government, right? And and I think that that there is a lot of division, and I'll tell you that it's at every level. Uh, one of the things that I'm working on uh, down south in Santa Clara is that we're working on the census, okay. And, and the Trump administration is doing everything possible to make sure that there isn't a complete count in the census and that people who look like me uh, are left out of that count, right? And that is so important because the census will determine funding and also political representation for the next 10 years. And what we know will happen is that there's going to be a lot of misinformation about how the census works mm-hmm. to scare people from uh, being involved. I mean, they did that already during the election. Scare tactics, you know, in Texas and other parts of the country, you know, they had eyes, you know, on alert. And I mean, there was so much fear. And you know what? Even though their tactic has worked for a while, it's not working anymore. I was reading that Latino turnout was up by 175%. So we, there's something going on in this country uh, we just have to keep going and keep it up and not and be relentless. I want to go back to immigration. I think that this is a very important topic. It feels mm-hmm. very chaotic, and, I, and we're in crisis mode right now. Um, even if we can't get him impeached and if we have to go through the next two years mm-hmm. before a new president takes office, we hope uh, more lives will be destroyed, mm-hmm. more lives will be taken, people will be deported. We're, we're going to be, in my opinion— in a public health crisis in a mm-hmm. lot of ways, if they start getting their ways with the public charge regulations being changed right. or right. Um, you know, everything else, uh, being an anti-immigrant uh, attitude from the administration, your thoughts, your feelings, California is a sanctuary city with Gavin Newsom as governor, more than likely will continue pushing for better policies around the immigrant community. Mm-hmm. But obviously, this is a nationwide issue. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, it's 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 an issue that I've been dealing with for a long time, and it's a personal issue for me. And in fact, you know, where Gavin Newsom and I had differences was over immigration, uh, and we since you know have kind of patched things up, you know, and and I think that he recognized some of the mistakes he's made. Uh, I did go to uh, a small gathering that he had before the election, and we had an opportunity to chat. And as he noted to me. You know, things are only going to get worse in terms of what the federal government is going to try to do, right? Uh, But California is ready to push back. You know, we are not going to give up on that issue uh, because uh, so much is at stake. And it is really, you know, scare tactics, as Nancy Pelosi, you know, said, you know, what happened with the caravan or the scaravan, right, was all about making people afraid, right, afraid of, of uh, people who don't look like them, afraid of brown people, this idea that they're going to come here and hurt you, hurt your family, even though these people were basically, you know, risking their lives in search of a better life, right? Uh, and, uh, and there are so many ways in which the federal government can actually, you know, hurt people. And, and I think that we need to continue what the Bay Area and, and the state of California have been doing. You know, we are a sanctuary state. We are a sanctuary region uh, more than anywhere else in the country. This is a place, the nine-county Bay Area, where people 
uh, believe in immigration, protect uh, our immigrant community. Uh, but we have to be, you know, relentless and vigilant because I don't know what else is coming, you know, but I expect the very worst. Uh, but I know that if anyone can handle it, we can handle it. And we have not only the right values, but we also have the infrastructure. You know, we're the fifth largest economy in the world. So we have the economic power uh, to also push back. Uh, uh, but I don't know what else is coming. I think I think that we the, the worst is yet to come. <laughs> Sounds oh, on that happy note. Yeah. No, yeah. but but look, I mean, but but let me say this, that that you know sometimes it takes something horrible for people to to wake up and realize you know where things are i mean i i will say that for myself you know when i saw the election of barack obama i thought you know this country has come a long way and we are a different country than than i thought we were right the the fact that a country like ours can elect the first african-american president what ended up happening was that, you know, that really wasn't exactly where the country was. It was and it wasn't. Uh, and what you see happening now is, uh, you know, a lot of forces, a lot of people who were who remain to this day racist, you know, kind of reacting to that, right? And and Trump, I mean, it, it kind of, I mean, when the history of this time is written, uh, it will probably make sense that we we went from having you know, the first African-American president to then having an openly out white supremacist, right? It's just, it's, it's where we are, right? And, and, and I think that those of us who thought that we had come a long way, we took a lot of things for granted, and now we know that we can't do that anymore. And, and to add to that, I mean, we just had Artie Coley from Asian Law Caucus here, who's the executive director, and so they take up a lot of cases and are suing the federal government on the, uh, the immigration policies. And something that she mentioned was very important for us, and it was the a moment of hope. And that being here in San Francisco and taking some of these cases, that the sanctuary policies in San Francisco and in California have really helped mm-hmm. some of their cases. So my, my, my brain, my thought went, if California, you know, had... Um, uh, some gains, some positive gains, and if we created policies in, that really worked, could we replicate this nationwide? Could we become the blueprint to finally getting healthy immigration reform? Well, look, I mean, I, I think what's so interesting about this attack on California, and you saw, by the way, the horrendous tweets about the fires, right, and the the heartless, careless way in which he treated, you know, he talked about the people who were dying is that the fact is, right, that California is the envy of the world, right? Our economy is as strong as it's ever been. Uh, You know, uh, the technology revolution that's happening throughout the world came from Silicon Valley, from California. Places like San Francisco are innovating in ways that no one else is doing. We are the envy of the world, and we are the envy of the world mainly because of our diversity. That's what has created this prosperity, this wealth, right? And so they, they are attacking diversity, immigration, the very things that actually have made California so prosperous. So we're actually every day showing the country and the world how wrong Trump is, 
right? Because we are actually, you know, leading this economic prosperity and recovery, which, by the way, happened before Trump got there, right? I mean, the the, con the economy was doing well under Obama, and uh, the, the only difference between Obama and Trump is that we don't have, you know, trillions of dollars in deficit because, you know, he gave corporations a huge tax break. Uh, so... So, so we are showing the way, and not only in California, but in San Francisco. You know, we have in San Francisco, I think, the strongest economy of any part of, of the state and the country, and we're very proud of that. And, and that doesn't happen by happenstance. I think that the values that make San Francisco, San Francisco, are, are critical to our success. Uh, the diversity is critical to that, uh, to that economic growth. Uh, the challenge for San Francisco is that as we are growing, we are forgetting that, that there has to be uh, some consideration for low income, for working people. You know, the, the economic recovery and the, and the miracle that has been uh, San Francisco has not helped everyone, has not included everyone, right? And, and, and that's the challenge in the discussion that we're having at the local level. Who are we as a city? It's great that we have Salesforce. It's great that we have Twitter. Uh, but in the same neighborhood, we have people who are barely affording to pay rent, who, who, who can barely afford to put food on the table, and who are doing so uh, even though they're working hard, right? I mean, look at what's happening with our hotel workers, right? Uh, many of them have to work you know, two, three jobs to be able to afford to live in the Bay Area. And so we need, especially at the local level, uh, economic policies uh, that are truly inclusive, that recognize that, yes, you have to have economic wealth. There's nothing wrong with people making money. But that prosperity has to be shared by working people, by low-income people, because I don't think that San Francisco would be San Francisco without that working class, without that middle class. Sticking, taking that in a different direction, but just using that as a jumping off point about kind of some political uniquenesses of San Francisco. Um, back during the uh, primary campaign between Gavin Newsom and uh, Villaraigosa, uh, you know, one former mayor of Los Angeles, this huge megalopolis, that should have been a huge base of votes. But up here in the Bay Area, people really voted in, in large numbers. And it when you kind of think about that and you think about, wow, Jerry Brown, Kamala Harris, uh, Diane Feinstein, Barbara Boxer, Gavin Newsom, and all these state leaders who've come from the Bay Area, and many of them specifically from San Francisco, what is it about the political culture here that enables politicians to be successful outside of San Francisco? Well, I think it's two things. First, I do think that, that there is more political engagement mm -hmm. by the uh, population, by, by the constituents and the voters in San Francisco. And that's a big challenge with Southern California. And, and quite frankly, that means that it's a lot of people, communities of color, a lot of Latinos and Latinas who are not voting in, in Southern California. And that has given Northern California a disproportionate amount of power. And, and I think that even though it's good for Northern California, I don't think that it's good for our state as a whole to have a, a, a section of the state not voting in the level that they should. The second thing, and I, and I'll, I said this before, mm -hmm. 
I do think that there is a political establishment, machine, whatever you want to call it, that is based out of San Francisco, that not only runs San Francisco, but actually runs the state. They decide, you know, Kamala Harris is going to be in the U.S. Senate. Gavin Newsom is going to be governor. So-and-so is going to do this, is going to do that. Now, as a San Franciscan, I appreciate to some extent the fact that there is San Francisco people in those roles. But I don't think that's how it should be. Uh, I don't think that, that, uh, that we are the kind of country, it should be the kind of country where that happens. And so those of us who have been involved in, in democratic politics, at least personally, have done so because we want to fight against that machine. You know, we want to fight against that establishment, right? Because we want to give people who are not connected to that uh, an opportunity to thrive and do well in politics. And I think that that's how it should be, uh, because the reality is that the, there is a generation that has been holding that power for a very long time. And if you look at who the players are, it's the same players, right? And I think at some point you want to say, you know what, give an opportunity to the new generation, to a new crop of people. Uh, and, and it's not just as good as it is for, for, for Northern California, take into consideration the needs of Southern California as well. I'm going to ask one more question and then we're going to open it up to the audience for questions for David. So start thinking about your questions. John's going to walk around with the mic. So, um, David, you are your voice here, man, that I trust, uh, especially politically, and you represent a lot of my interests as LGBTQ, uh, person of color, San Francisco progressive. And so my question is a heart-to-heart -heart, uh, to LGBTQ, LGBTQ voters. And mm -hmm. this question of when, how do we have an honest discussion with each other as members of the LGBTQ community when an elected official doesn't represent our interests and the most marginalized, the most vulnerable. I don't want to name any names, but I mean, in just looking at this election, we have an LGBTQ political leader who did not necessarily right away stand up, you know, for the transgender community when we had a uh, candidate running for the Board of Education who made transphobic comments. It's not of San Francisco values. We saw in the state senator campaign, you know, just uh, a lot of really bad attitudes that came out uh, really horrible against a female candidate. Um, and then also their positions on certain, you know, propositions or ballot measures that go against, you know, providing solutions for homelessness, uh, providing solutions for the economic inequality, providing opportunities for all of us. So how? How do we have that heart-to-heart -heart discussion, uh, specifically as members of the LGBTQ community, when we have been at the forefront of every equal rights movement? We understand this. I think it's a challenge. I think it's a challenge, uh, and I think it's a, it's a challenge for a lot of different reasons. I think one of the problems uh, with marriage equality is that for so many people in the LGBTQ community, once we attain marriage equality, for many of them, it sort of seemed like, you know what, we're done, we have arrived. Uh, and there was a very real fear, and I think to some extent that fear was, was justified, that because of that, that being LGBT for a lot of people did not matter as much, right? And, and I mean, if you ask someone like Mark Leno, right, who just lost a very close race, uh, you know, you do wonder, you know, if some of that is true, that that for some people in San Francisco, it wasn't that important to elect the first gay mayor. Right. And I think there was some of that. Uh, 
but I think that there's also that side uh, for, for minorities that once you make it, that you kind of forget where you came from. And what's so remarkable about Harvey Milk, you know, and I've done a lot of, uh, you know, sort of studying about Harvey Milk, was this idea that yes, we are queer and we fight for queer rights, but by virtue of being part of this minority group, we have an obligation to fight for the rights of everyone else, right? That you cannot be for LGBT rights if you're also not for women's rights, if you're also not for immigrant rights, right? And, and I think that some of our leaders have forgotten that, hmm. that there is a sense that, you know what, we're okay right? And that economic inequality is not a priority for LGBT rights, even though it should be, because so many of our members are disproportionately impacted by the inequality. And then when it comes to LGBT rights, and I've always said this, right, that we, are on, we as a society collectively are only as strong as the person who has the least among us, right? And so the LGBT community in its place in society is only as strong as those who have the least within that LGBTQ community. And who are those? The transgender community, right? And so it is painful that when someone targets the transgender community, elected officials within the LGBT community don't prioritize that and look the other way right, and turn their back, and on one hand say they're for transgender rights, but yet don't do anything about it. But it's not just LGBT leaders, it's also straight leaders, right, who, who refuse to take away the endorsement in this case, right? And I'm proud, by the way, that we as a Democratic Party, when we sent out our education mailer, uh, highlighting our candidates, pushing for Tony Thurman and other folks, we had something that said, know that this individual you know, has withdrawn from the race because we wanted to make sure that this individual did not win, right? And we helped to make that happen. But it is sad that she got the number of votes that she did. And I believe that in part, it's because some of those endorsements remain mm -hmm. for her. Right. At least he didn't uh, elect a dead pimp. Right. Oh, <laughs> that, that and then there's that. Pimps. Questions for David. Anyone have a question? Raise your hand. And Don't this be, is being recorded for the program. By yeah. the Don't way. be shy. So Speak into the mic, please. After the success of Red to Blue SF, what's next? Well, I, we will continue to make the party uh, relevant uh, for every San Franciscan. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that for the first time that I can remember, the party wasn't just doing local stuff, but also thinking about the national stuff. Uh, and we care about Congress. We care what happens in the House of Representatives. And so we will continue to monitor that, uh, not only to make sure that we retain that majority, but also, uh, as, as, as uh, you were talking uh, earlier, Michelle, that, that the, the people that we elected continue to, to push forward a progressive democratic agenda that truly reflects our San Francisco values. Pat? It's my belief that the more progressive we are publicly, the more progressives we attract. For instance, 
I'm born and raised in Ohio in the district that sent John Boehner to Washington for many years. Mm-hmm. This year, for the third time, Sherrod Brown was elected with an overwhelming right. landslide vote in that state. And he is a progressive, an abashed progressive. I think we, we just have to be out as progressives. We cannot... We cannot hide and pretend we aren't because we think it won't attract people from other areas of the country. We just have to be out, set the example, and stay focused on that. Do you? Can you agree with that? I, I mean, absolutely. I think the most important thing in politics, from my own experience, is authenticity, right? You have to be true to yourself. And if you're not, I think that comes across, right? And so I became a Democrat because I believe that we are the party of working people, of middle-income people, of women, of people of color, and that we're always pushing the envelope to make society more equitable. I'm proud of that, and I think that we should be proud of that, right? And I think that when we are open about it, I agree. I think we're successful. I would also add that if you don't make the argument, the other side will define your argument exactly. for you, and they will not do it positively. Uh, here, right, question here first, then I'll come back here. David, I have a quick question around, so as the San Francisco Democratic Party chair, what is it like for you to work with the Los Angeles Democratic Party, and then maybe whatever the Central Valley Democratic mm-hmm. parties are, and then how do, do you bring the, us along with you so we also sure. connect with them? Well, you know, I, one of the, the great things about being in this role is that you get to interact with people from other parts of the state, uh, not only other chairs, but also the chair of the state party. And, you know, I keep reminding people, you know, uh, and maybe this is sort of uh, a little uh, pretentious of me, but I, I feel like San Francisco is the heart of the Democratic Party in California, right? That we are the core, that we are the ones who always come out for our candidates and for our issues. Uh, and, uh, and I think at times probably people don't, you know, like that, but they also appreciate that. And I'm proud to say, by the way, and, and we were pushing very hard for this, that the state democratic party convention is coming to San Francisco this, this next year in March. So make sure that you're here again to, to highlight the very important role that San Francisco has played, continues to play, and will play in the future of the Democratic Party in California. Question back here. Um, State Senator Scott Weiner has said that he's going to come back next year with a new version of his uh, housing transit density bill. If he were here today, what would you ask him to include in that new version, and what would you ask him to exclude from the next version? You know, I have uh, known Scott Weiner longer than anyone in local politics. He and I went to law school together, so we've known each other for more than 25 years. Um, I, I don't know that I necessarily think that another bill along the lines of what he introduces, what the state of California needs. Uh, I, I would hope that before he does that, that he would sit down with a lot of the people who are against the bill, who are not necessarily against the principle of building more housing. And, and I do believe that we have to build more housing. And I think that one of the challenges that progressives have had is that we have come across as being against 
the building of more housing. That's not what we're about. Uh, but you cannot just uh, have a one-size-fits-all approach the way that he has put forward. I think that that is going to uh, backfire. I don't think that will pass. And it's not going to have the desired outcome. So before he brings something forward, I hope that he sits down with people and comes up with something that is uh, a, a more joint effort that includes the various players around that issue. Go ahead. Hi, David. Um, so voter registration has skyrocketed uh, this year, which is a good thing. Um, and, uh, and voter turnout was very high. But here in California, even here in San Francisco, the fastest growing chunk, well, the fastest shrinking party is the Republican Party. But the fastest growing chunk of voters is not Democrats. It's it's people who are registering as declined to state or independent. A lot of them are young people who I think don't see the difference. Um, what would you say to them to get them to register as Democrats? By the way, I see Keith uh, Baraka, who is uh, one of our vice presidents from the Democratic Party, who does great work uh, on voter registration, who's in the audience. Uh, I would say I, I would say to 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 them give uh, give a second look to the Democratic Party, and one of the reasons why the San Francisco Democratic Party has been doing what we're doing is to attract those young people, right? And and we've had to change our ways, right? It's not just mailers. We're on social media, you know, uh, making sure that we engage young people in the way that they interact with the world. Uh, but look at the things that we have fought for, the principles and values that we have put forward as a San Francisco Democratic Party. I guarantee you that those values are more aligned with uh, what the other options. You know, So uh, I, I believe that it is a problem that so many folks are signing up as declined to state. Uh, and it's something that we are purposely you know, addressing. But I think that you can't just tell people you know, register as a Democrat, you have to give them a reason to vote, you know, to register as a Democrat. And that's what we're trying to do. But if you have any other ideas, you know, we, we have social events. Uh, we try to engage with young people. Uh, and one of the things that I've tried to do as chair is to appoint, uh, you know, new people to the Democratic County Central Committee so that they have that new energy. You know, not that I'm too old, but, you know, I, I also know that uh, with the the millennials and the new generation that they, you know, the, it, it helps to have people from that generation talking to them as well. In this last local election, I thought there was some really unfortunate dynamics. Uh, well, actually, I'm, I'm going back to the mayoral election. I was lambasted by people who had been my friends. I was called racist an anti-feminist because I didn't support London Breed. It would never in the world have occurred to me as a Leno supporter to have accused people of being homophobic or anti-Semitic. There was no way I would have done that. And I understand that there's a trend to try to get more women in politics and more people who aren't white. But I really do see this as a problem. And I would like to think that voters will choose candidates based on qualifications. Have you noticed this? Well, look, I think, I think, I mean, I believe in diversity and I do believe that politics is best served if we have more diverse people engaged in politics. I do think we need more women. I do think we need more, more uh, people of color. 
but the fact that someone is a woman or a person of color does not automatically mean that I'm going to support them, right? And you know, one of the most appealing things, and which I think is the reason why London Breed won, is because of her personal story. It's a very uplifting and inspirational personal story. And I think we have to give credit to her for that, right? Uh, the, the issue that I and others had with London Reed, and as I've said this to her before, as someone who also came from poverty, who you know had to overcome obstacles, is not just where you come from, but what you do once you get to that point, right? And the challenge that I've had with London is that the policies that she put forward at times have not helped the very people that came from that background, people like me also, right? Um, so, so I think that, that there has to be a recognition that diversity matters, that it's important, but it's not the be-all, end-all. At the end of the day, you have to look at where people are, right? And I am proud of the diversity of the San Francisco Democratic Party and the Central Committee, you know, who serves. But, but as important as that is, that's not the end. It's also the policies and principles that they're fighting for. Anyone else? I'll have I'll I'll let John have the last question. We have like five minutes left. Um, oh, I'll, wow. And so my my last question really is uh, bringing it back to this election. Disappointed by Prop Ten mm -hmm. uh, and and rent control uh, as the homelessness issues a crisis that's statewide, right? And then uh, excited about Prop C because it sends a message that people, whether you're far right in the middle or to the left. We recognize that we need to be doing something. We need to do something. Even the mayor, when she mm -hmm. was right. elected, said she's going to do something right away, and she did. She sent the poop patrol. That's the description coined by San Francisco Chronicle, by the way, not me. They, they ran a big article where they were like, the mayor cleans up the city with the poop patrol. Um, but that's what she immediately did. She put money into that and cleaning up the streets in that way. So what I, my, my question really is coming down to, we know that the, the people, we want to do something. We don't care if they're, you know, whether it's big or small or it's uh, incremental steps. We have to do something. And the argument why she didn't back Prop C was because there wasn't necessarily a, a plan in place, that it was just all about, you know, taxing all this money, but then what do we do with it? Um, that was a really long way of getting my feelings out about, the, you know, the results of the election, but... Gosh, I really do hope that tomorrow, today, right now, we do something uh, about our homelessness crisis, mental health issues, and you know the affordability of being able to live. Well, I think I think homelessness is the big issue facing San Francisco, and uh, a lot of conversations and discussions have been had. But I certainly don't feel that that local government has done what it needs to do about it. And I think that uh, this election is an opportunity uh, for this board to play an important role with this new supermajority. Uh, I hope that they reach out to the mayor. I know they already have. Uh, and I hope that they can work together to deliver results for San Franciscans. Uh, and I think that if those results are not delivered in a very short period of time, uh, that, you know, what happened with prophecy will happen again in some form, that when the politicians don't act and do what they're supposed to, the voters step in. And 
we just had an election. We just had a mayor's race in June, but we're going to have another mayor's race next year. And I think that uh, for the board and the mayor, uh, they need to start thinking that, you know, San Franciscans are uh, people of action and, and they want results and they have an opportunity to provide those results. But if they don't provide those results, the people, I think, will step in and do what they need to do to make those results happen. Are there solid plans out there on homelessness? I mean, we've lost, what, 3,000 shelter beds over the, since uh, 2004, I think. Is that right? Uh, and I mean, in other words, just getting back to where we were way back then when homelessness was also a problem, even trying to then bite off a chunk of actually fixing beyond that and, and such, are there any solid plans out there? Well, I mean, the thing, the crazy thing about homelessness, right, is that is it is a complicated, difficult issue, but it's not brain surgery. We know what the answer is to homelessness. You know, if you want people to be off the street, you have to give them a home. You have to give them housing, a place to be. And, and there are things that are working. I'll tell you, one of the things that is the most disappointing about what I'm doing right now is that I'm doing in Santa Clara what I wish people could do in San Francisco. You know, we are trying to address the 6,500 people who are living on the streets of the county mm -hmm. by actually building supportive housing for them, right? Because navigation centers, shelters are an important part of, of the process of, of the solution, but they're not the solution. They're not housing. Yeah. I, I, I used to be a big supporter of the navigation center until I learned they're kicked out after 30 yeah, or 60 yeah, yeah. days. I mean, it's... And so... And so so we know what it takes to solve this issue. It's housing, it's supportive services so that if you have mental health issues that those issues can be addressed, so that if you have substance abuse issues that those issues can be addressed. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the city that knows how to make things happen should get this right. And I think that Prop C provides that opportunity. The problem I have is that there is so much talk and so much discussion and yet you still see the same problems on the street. And I say this as a former supervisor, it really broke my heart that I would go to a tent, talk the person into going into the navigation center, and then 30 days later, they're out, mm -hmm. right? It's like, how do you make that case as a supervisor, yeah. right? But unless they have a place for them to go, the same thing will continue to happen. So this creates an opportunity to make that happen. Uh, if I were the mayor, I would use this, the, the will of the, of the public to say, uh, the will of the voters, okay, let's go build that housing. Let's provide those services. And I think that the board wants to work with her to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Let's make it happen. But if we don't, again, the voters will step in and do what needs to be done. Okay, Elida, I have the last question. It's a very quick question, by the way. It's <laughs> your name on the show, so you get that. Probably. Michelle can ask anything Well, she wants. I mean, thank you so much for joining us here at the yes. Commonwealth Club and for the program and for your thoughts. It really, you know, it's so great to have you. My last question to you is, any plans? I mean, you mentioned serving as a deputy executive clerk for Santa Clara County, and, of course, you serve chair for the SFDCCC, but you've also been in San Francisco politics any any plans to get back into running for office? I'll tell you this. When I do, uh, you'll be the first one to find out. <laughs> I was kind of hoping that I am the first one to find out on this show right here. <laughs> David, thank you so much for joining us here at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. Thank you.
And thank you to our audience. Uh, the week after Thanksgiving on the 26th, we have a big talk, the state of trans violence. And we also have another talk on the 29th. It's the 40th year anniversary of Briggs Initiative. And so Tom Amiano, Gwen Craig, and Sue Englander will be here to talk about you know, what we did right, what we learned from that fight, and how we can continue on with our movement. So check the listing at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS for all future upcoming talks. Thank you again. Yeah.